For those of you that uh, are new, and for the rest of you, by way of review, we're, we're in a, a course called uh, Moral Dilemmas. We're looking at different ethical scenarios. We started our class by looking at different philosophies or approaches that people take to uh, moral decision-making. And um, after I left last week, to be honest with you, I thought, man, I hope I didn't miscommunicate the difference between situational ethics and graded absolutes. So I took it upon myself just to throw a few bullet points down on the board just to help clarify that uh, situational ethics and graded absolutes, the second which I favor and I think is a solid... There's our notes. So if Mark just wrote them up quick. So if you, if you want some notes, you can put up your hand and he can help you. So uh, situational ethics at first sounds like graded absolutes, but it's very different. The basic difference is that in situational ethics, the essence of right and wrong varies. In graded absolutes, they do not. Right is right, wrong is wrong. In situational ethics, you decide, based on the situation, what's right or wrong. In graded absolutes, there's the simple recognition as appears to be the case in the Bible, that sometimes rights and rights may conflict. So we have the couple sit- biblical situations that we gave, whereby Rahab is harboring God's men in her home. And godless men come and ask her, are they there? So she now has, in that situation, a conflict. Do I, quote-unquote, tell the godless men the truth and jeopardize God's men? That's who they represent. Or do I tell the godless men a lie, which in the eyes of God is a justifiable lie, in order to protect God's men? And we know what she did. She chose to tell a fib, a lie, to the godless men in order to protect God's men. Now, some people that don't agree with this system would say, nope, she should have just told the truth and let the chips fall away. God takes care of the rest. Well, that, that sounds pious, but it's not what happens in the Bible. And uh, it's not practical, which is a secondary argument, but it's not, what's happened in, it's not what happened in the Bible. She told them a lie, and she's declared to be a righteous person as a result of that. Um, Another example would be from modern times, the German Christian who's harboring Jews in his house during the Second World War, and the Nazi, the Gestapo, comes to his house and says, are you harboring Jews? So you might say, well, he's not responsible for their actions. Well, really he is, because he's either confronted with an option of turning human life over to a tyrant who's going to take that life in a heinous way, by the way, or to protect human life. So he is like two bad choices. To protect human life, he's got to tell a lie. And he chooses the higher ethic. If you look at ethics on a grid, the higher ethic is to protect human life and to reduce the capacity of an evil person to act in an evil way. So he chooses the higher, more lofty virtue over the lesser and says, no, they're not here. 
and is considered righteous as a result. So the idea here behind graded absolutes is a recognition that contrary to what your Sunday school teacher may have taught you, rights and wrongs do not all carry the same weight. Now, how do we know that? We actually know that from Scripture. Uh, we can go right down to the third one. How are they weighed in Scripture? Well, the penalties that are applied to different sins in the Bible are not all the same. So clearly they don't carry the same weight. There's not the same punishment attached to uh, theft as there is to murder. There's not the same penalty attached. So clearly then murder is a greater expression of one's depravity than theft. Rape is a greater expression of one's depravity than looking at a man or woman lustfully. There's a gradation of penalties attached to it, just as there is in Western law. You don't get the same penalty for killing three people as you do for running a stoplight and running over someone's dog. It's different. We recognize, even in rights and wrongs in judicial law, that they are graded, some being more heinous than others. So then what one needs to think about to sort through this when they're in a situation where they may be experiencing a conflict between two absolutes is what, what are they supposed to protect? Is a particular law in place to protect the character and essence of God? Well, if it is, that's priority. Is it there more to protect human life? Is it there to protect people from other people? Is it there to protect a person from themselves? What is the law in place for? So think about the issue of truth-telling. Did God create the law, tell the truth, to protect a Nazi and to facilitate a Nazi to take someone's life? No, of course not. That prohibition is there in order to protect society, in order to protect life, in order to build relationships, and so forth. Well, if a person then uses God's law, which exists to protect the holiness of God, the sanctity of life, and the sanctity of relationships, in order to take life, dishonor God, and uh, bring chaos, then to try to keep that law for purposes other than what they were intended for is to misuse the law. Just as if the godless men that came to Rahab's house, think about this, if the godless men that came to Rahab's house were owed the truth, but God's intention in saying you got to tell the truth is so they could take the lives of the men he commissioned to enter the city, who represented the holiness and character of God, then why would God give us that law? So we got to think about the reasons for rights and wrongs, and they're not difficult to sort through. We need to think about that when we find ourselves in an, an ethical dilemma so that it will help us to choose uh, the right purpose for which the law was put in place and to grade one against the other. Can they be abused? Yes. Uh, people can abuse morality. People can abuse your morality for evil purposes. So if they know that you're uh, trustworthy, honest, always tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth kind of person, and they call you up, as happened to me on the phone a while ago, and said, oh, blah, 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 we're from whatever, ABC Security. Uh, we'd like to know if you have a house alarm. It says, none of your business. What? 
not going to tell you whether I have a house alarm on the phone. Well, why not? We would like to offer you a deal. on a. I said, you can be the guy down the street calling me to see if I have a house alarm. You think I'm stupid? <laughs> you know, well, some people would say, oh, I get to tell, not only do I have to tell the truth, but I have to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. They've asked me a direct question. I've got to give them a direct answer. No, I don't have a house alarm. Oh, really? Well, what if they are the burg cab burglar down the street? The it's, it may be a shallow example, but the point is people can use your moral uh, framework to commit evil. We're going to go knock on all the Christians' houses in Germany because we know they're sworn to tell the truth and we're going to find out if they're harboring Jews. And as a result of their moral stance, we're going to take all the Jews out and slaughter them. Is that why God encourages us to tell the truth? Clearly not. So we don't, we're, when we are in a situation where we have a conflict, and they, they don't happen too often, but we have a conflict where it's like we have two bad choices or two good choices, we weigh them and we choose the greater uh, good over the lesser good, or we choose the lesser evil over the greater evil. That's the point. Now, you don't have to agree with me on that, but I'm just telling you straight up, that's how I'm going to teach this course, from the framework of graded absolutes. I believe in absolutes. I believe in rights and wrongs. But I believe some rights are more right than others, and some wrongs are less wrong than others. So, anyway, that's sort of a bit of a s summary and a little but more of an articulation of where we went last time. Any, any questions or comments on that before we get back to our, our topic, the topic at hand? Anybody feeling uncomfortable yet? Okay, hope you are, a little bit. What we're doing then is we're looking at several issues that can um, create moral dilemmas for Christians and trying to sort through our options in response to these moral dilemmas. And the first one we, we started into last week was the question of war. And what we're trying to do is understand the ethics of war and answer the question, is it right or wrong or somewhere in between for a Christian to participate in or endorse war? And at the beginning, we talked about the fact that this is a big question. It affects life. It affects countries, governments, our attitudes about forgiveness and justice and corporate responsibility. The early church I suggested to you was oriented in the direction of passivism. But the reason for that was largely because they were, in essence, outlaws and weren't really formally identified or under the protection of a particular government. The medieval church went on the Let's, go, let's do defensive war and offensive war. So they had no problems either protecting themselves through means of war from enemies, nor did they have a problem with waging war if they could somehow justify it religiously. The modern church tends to, to fall into the category of believing in just war, and we'll, we'll talk about that framework shortly. But I would suggest to you that all of these views are largely influenced by uh, both political and theological realities. So we could ignore it, we could criticize it, we could decline to answer the question, or we could just be patriotic and say this is a national issue, not a Bible issue. But I suggested to you that, in fact, those are all inappropriate responses. Then we talked a little bit about what we agree on. We all think war is horrible. We pray for peace. We know that war is part of a fallen world, that the Israeli holy wars don't necessarily inform our modern-day notions of whether war is right or wrong. 
and that conscription and those kind of realities make it difficult for Christians to live their ethics because you could have an ethical stance and your government basically says, I don't care what your beliefs are, you're going to war, and if you don't, we're putting you in prison. So there's, there's that conflict. And then we started into one of um, several different responses, different responses that Christians have historically and presently offered to the question of, is it right to go to war? And the first one was non-resistance. So how did we define the ethical system known as non-resistance as it relates to war last week? If I say to you, I, I believe in non-resistance when it comes to war, what am I saying? Okay, good. So if you, if you, I don't know if you heard it in the back, but you'll go to war, but only in a supporting role. So you'll participate in war, but you'll you won't support, you won't participate in any role that actually uh, puts you in a place to cause resistance to the enemy. You're not going to be the guy pulling the trigger, firing the cannon, or flying the plane, or anything like that. You won't literally resist the enemy, but you'll participate in the broader effort to resist the enemy, which is going to include need for doctors and nurses and translators and radio communicators and all that kind of stuff. And we were then working our way through about 15 different bullet points that relate to this argument. So one argument is violence is, is directly tied to the sin of the fall, so why would I want to be violent? Uh, various international organizations have been form to stem the tide of total destruction, so I get that, so I'll participate in some way, shape, or form. And then we started looking at some scripture passages. So we have Matthew 5, Jesus talks about not resisting an evildoer. Uh, Romans 12, uh, don't be conformed to the patterns of the world. Romans, uh, sorry, John 17, we're not of this world, and that would include the use of violence. John 18, church and the state are not one and the same. Um, Colossians 1.13, we're part of the kingdom of Christ. Uh, Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. So in other words, you know, I don't want to put too much energy into my citizenship here on earth. Uh, Hebrews 11, we're pilgrims and strangers. And then we ended uh, at the next point here, which is John 18.36. So if you grab your Bibles, we'll go to John 18.36. So this is, uh, this is a passage that a person falling into this uh, ethical paradigm would appreciate. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, and I would not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. So we have Jesus here basically saying, hey, if I wanted to rally an army to get myself off the cross, I could do that, no problem, but I'm not going to do it because this is not my kingdom. So this is a powerful verse. And it certainly has uh, gives us a reason to think about our response to evil and war and violence in this world. And what, what kingdom are we citizens of? Where are we going to invest our energy? And then if you parallel that to 1 John 2, 6, where Jesus says, 
or the, the apostle says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. It's like, whoa, well, if Jesus' ethic was non-resistance, maybe mine should be too, an ethic of non-resistance. Romans 1, 16, and 2 Corinthians 10, 4, you can write those down. Both of those passages talk, essentially talk about the fact that the... Um, gospel of God has the power to change lives, not the sword. So it's kind of like, let's just say you were in World War One, you fought, you lost friends, and you know you were emotionally scarred from it. And then, uh, you know, 25, 30 years later, you're back at it again in World War Two. You could easily say, well, what's the point of this? It didn't really work the first time. Why why resist again the second time? Put my life in the line, the lives of my friends. Um, clearly, we know from human history, or we wouldn't be having current skirmishes, that war never permanently solves anything. And if you kick out one tyrant, there's always another waiting to fill his shoes. So let's say we deal with ISIS. Okay, who's next? So there's always going to be someone out there shooting innocents or trying to take someone else's property. So the person that falls into this category basically say, look, war doesn't fix anything long term, so let's just be about gospel ministry. Another point, based more on history than scripture, is that whenever the church has used weapons to expand her mission, only negatives have resulted. So the most famous example of this would be all the different crusades that took place uh, in the medieval era and thereafter. That um, you know, there were several of them, by the way, over several decades. But um, it's a little bit of a stain on the church, I think most modern Christians would say. And uh, probably be hard to find a, an example of the church as a whole taking up arms, where everyone's like, yeah, that, that was a great idea. We should do that again. So more of a historical argument, maybe a pragmatic argument. One might say it just doesn't work. And then we have Jesus' overriding ethic of love, Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine. which um, if you look at, let's go to Exodus chapter 21 under the Old Covenant. And then we'll compare it to Matthew shortly. So go to Exodus 21. 23 to 25 is what we're looking for. So let's just read it for yourself and then summarize it in your own words for the rest of us. What's the passage say? This passage, by the way, is still um, consulted in pretty much every modern jurisprudence code. 
So when countries set up their jurisprudence, their, their, their systems of law, their, their courts, um, the, specific, the specifics of the law, this is called the lex talionis. You know, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, right? So your penalty should in some way fit the crime, right? Now, I, just as an aside, I think it would be hard to argue that Canadian law is necessarily true to this because, you know, we could talk about many examples of people who seem to get away with a whole lot having committed very heinous acts. But nevertheless, the intention is to sort of go with this general principle that you commit the crime, you do the time, right? But then you thumb through the Bible and you get to Jesus in uh, Matthew 22. And Jesus says, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And this is you know, quite a bit different. I, in fact, I think other places in the gospel, Jesus quotes from Exodus he says, you know, it has been said, eye for an eye, but. So some people believe that Jesus is dismissing the, the Exodus law and he's replacing it with a new and higher ethic. It's not saying it was wrong the first time, but some people would say that there's a higher ethic that replaces the ethic of retaliation. And that applies to not only every corporate body, i.e. nation, but also to every Christian individual. And then we have uh, Romans 13 and verse 1. We have 1 Peter 2. Both of these emphasize that political powers are ordained by God and should be followed. So the person that believes in non-resistance says, okay, so I think all violence is wrong based on the ethic of Jesus, but at the same time, we have this call to follow the government. So the way they balance the two and participate in a war effort in a role of non-resistance is to say, I'll do something that's not violent as a way of surrendering to the authorities that are ordained by God, but without violating the specifics of Jesus' ethic not to be a violent person. And the reason why this is important is because I'm sure many of you thought right away, well, how can you participate in a war effort at all, even if you're answering the telephone, because it's sort of some way tied into an act of violence and aggression. So the person who believes in non-resistance balances, tries to balance their understanding of obedience to the government and the powers that be with Jesus' apparent ethic of non-resistance. The next point is that the kingdoms of Christ and the world operate on different levels. Um, Non-resistance is meant to affect social realities and provide a witness to others of Christ's love without negating the realities of political issues. So non-resistance then would only apply um, to an entire nation if that entire nation was in a formal way Christian. Meaning that if you are a Christian and you happen to be in a truly Christian country and you are part of government, you would have to advocate that the whole country 
chooses a stance of non-resistance. On the other hand, if you're a Christian living within a country that is not thoroughly Christian, which is basically like every nation on earth, then you balance the call to support the governing authorities, but not take up, not resort to violent means by, as we've already said, participating in a non-threatening role. Uh, so critics of this view will then say, well, actually, Jesus gets a little violent at times. So we'll go to a couple passages. John 2. Uh, we're going to go to John 2 first. John 2, 13 to 16. So this whole context here, this is the Passover. So the Passover of the Jews uh, was at hand. Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple. He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. In the temple is what set him off. It was in the temple. And the money changers were sitting there and making a whip of cords. Uh, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables and said to those that sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house into a house of trade. And his disciples remembered what was written by the prophet. Zeal for your house will consume me. And then in Matthew 21, 12 to 13. Jesus entered the temple, drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those that sold pigeons and he said to them it is written my house shall be called a house of prayer but you shall make you have made it a den of robbers so the, the person who then believes in non-resistance would say well it doesn't specifically say that jesus used physical force on people so he maybe was doing this with the whip but he didn't actually lay it on anybody's skin and you know that's certainly a possibility how do we know Maybe he just made a lot of good cracking sounds and it scared them and they all ran out. I don't know. In uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14, the basic teaching is that Christians should expect it when the world scoffs at us. And this is a critical verse for this ethical system because in this ethical system, this ethical system may be a hard sell for many because you're like, well, I don't want to look like an idiot. I don't want to look unpatriotic or unappreciative for the freedoms that we have. And this system would respond, that shouldn't concern you. Because of teachings like 1 Corinthians 2.14, that we should expect the world to scoff at us. So then the other side, of the, the other side would maybe then say, um, well, what about Israel? I mean, Israel, they were God's people and they used violent means. And this view would say that uh, you can't necessarily expect non-resistance of a nation, but you should expect it of individuals. So you got to hear that carefully because what this system is fundamentally suggesting is that there's a different ethic for an individual as opposed to a group, a group being a nation. And I want you to keep that in mind because to be honest with you, I think that's the greatest flaw in this 
system. That there's a different ethic for an individual as opposed to a group, but that this is a moral issue. Okay, A moral issue... We generally think of a moral issue as being tied to numbers. We think of it as being tied more to rights and wrongs. So what we're in fact dealing with under the non-resistance viewpoint is a different right or wrong for a nation as opposed to an individual. And just kind of keep that in the back of your mind as we move into some of the other views later on. Um, Matthew 10. Let's go to Matthew 10, verse 34. Okay, we'll just have somebody read that nice and loud. 34. Matthew 10, 34. Okay, so Jesus is talking about not taking up arms, but then he talks about bringing a sword. So how does the, the this is this wouldn't be a unique interpretation to this view, but how how would a person who believes in non-resistance handle that? Yep. Right. So we would we would in fact most of us would agree that that's probably not a literal sword Jesus is talking about, but he's talking about division. He's going to divide the world into at least two groups of people, believers and unbelievers, those that are in the kingdom, those that are not in the kingdom, those that follow, those that don't follow, whatever language you want to pick. But Jesus is not literally speaking about the reason I came into this world is to give everybody a sword to cut each other up. And I think that's a fair, a fair interpretation of the text that it's not a literal sword, it's some sort of a figurative divide that Jesus' ministry brought between, shall we say, the godless and the godly. So the bottom line then is that Christians can help governments fight wars, but not in positions of violence, only in positions of non-resistance thereby fulfilling and balancing the command to be loving, but also to obey the governments, the governing authorities. Now, what I would like to do, whether or not you prefer this view, is hear from you, and we'll do this with each system, to be fair, what, what are some of your objections, or what would be some of your immediate objections to the non-resistance view, or what might you imagine being some of the immediate objections to the non-resistance viewpoint? We'll just jot some of them down here on the board. What do you think? As you've heard it, Glenn? Maybe he was buttering his bread. <laughs> it must have been a big well, just a little. It was just a pocket knife. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, no, it's a good point. Oh, so, so, uh, you know, why Peter's sword, right? Did Jesus ever uh, say anything about swords with regard to his disciples? 
Okay. Well, yeah. Two of the disciples say, "We have here's two swords," and he said that is enough. Yeah. Before they went to yeah. the Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good. And we are, you know, we're joking around a little bit, but we're we're probably not talking about pocket knives, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm not saying they're wielding samurai swords, but you know they're probably. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> His pen knife. Yeah, when when Peter lopped off the soldier's ear there. Uh, what else? Yeah, Josh. Right. Okay, now, this doesn't necessarily cause an objection to the non-resistance view because, I mean, it's a good point. It may or may not be an objection depending on how you handle it because a person believing in this view might feel quite comfortable saying, you know, in situations where you're personally being attacked, it's not like you have to turn into a punching bag either. So they may be quite comfortable, unlike a pacifist, with uh, defending oneself, but not necessarily being the initiator to the act. Yep, Bob? Okay. Okay, so maybe we could just ask the question: How else, uh, you know, do we protect those that are being abused? So it's, it's, you know, in some ways it is more of a question. Well, if not violence, what do you do with, what do you do with ISIS? Because warfare against them. We know one thing about warfare against them. It'll slow them down and impede what they're doing. Whether it'll get rid of them permanently or not, it's a big question for the future. But we all know that if you stand in the way of any aggressive group and at least try to stop them, you at least temporarily reduce their capacity to do evil. So it's, it's a good question. How else? Yeah, yeah, true. And Peter came to his senses after the denial, the three denials that he, uh, he did. And and after that, you know, he, he became, you know, not a solid uh, Christian, but, uh, you know, a complete turnaround of what he was. Okay, so what? how would you put that in the form of a, an objection? What, what, how would you use what you just said as an objection against those who believe in non-resistance? Well, it's, it's the idea that he has it ingrained in him since 
three years before when we say it's starting to snow here, and <coughs> okay, he's going to liberate us and things like that, you know, and I'm going to be following him. But he never got across the three years that he was with him. He never came across with the crucifying of Christ. And like I said, so are you, are you, I agree with what you're saying. I'm trying to tie it into our question, though. So are you suggesting that Peter's actions are a misinterpretation of Jesus' ethic, or what did you have in mind? That's what it was. Okay. Joe? Okay, yeah. That at least on an individual level, there seems to be an implied um, you know, nodding of the head towards violence, at least if it's defending. You are dealing with a very different situation than we have here in Windsor, Ontario, in that you're traveling on foot for the most part, or in a small animal, through non-secured territories and uh, we all know the story of the Good Samaritan the reason why he was on the side of the road is because he's going from Jerusalem to Jericho which is a downhill long winding dark road with a lot of places for bandits to hide out and they would take advantage of people so you would have to have some personal defense so yeah it does seem that um, you know Jesus uh, advocates um, some sort of personal self-defense. Call it self-defense. Okay. Anything else come to mind? Okay. So I guess if, if, if Jesus did only have in mind animal life, then then that wouldn't really be a challenge to non-resistance, right? It would actually s potentially support their view. Because if you went to, let's let's say I believe in non-resistance, and I'm like, uh, and you say, that Joe says to me what he just said, I could respond, well, it's because there was bears and lions in Israel at the time. We know that otherwise David wouldn't have talked about killing them. They're not there now. But the Asiatic lion lived in Palestine during biblical times. It doesn't today. So I could that could be my response, I suppose. Uh, you know, I guess you could go that route. I mean, again, you do have the parable of the Good Samaritan to illustrate there was violence in the land at the time, too. Yeah. Goliath. Yeah. And we sort of commented on that a little bit in that they they would sort of, the non-resistance folks would, would say that there's a different ethic for a nation than an individual. The challenge to that would be there are few people on earth that aren't part of a nation. A nation's composed of individuals. It's not an entity unto itself. It's composed of individuals. 
Uh, Brian? Yeah. 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 I mean, that, that's actually a fascinating insight. If you, if your vision of Jesus, your conception of Jesus, your perception of Jesus, is solely shaped by his first advent, then you, you sort of have an image of more of a more of a passive, you know, powerful in preaching, but passive when it comes to uh, the physical, with the exception of maybe the temple incident. More passive, sort of loving, uh, caring, um, you know, more apt to maybe forgive than chastise. But if you also bring in the eschatological Christ, the conquering king, I preached a sermon several years ago at one of our uh, Advent services leading up to Christmas, and the the imagery of Christ as the conquering King is actually um, it's eschatological. It also shows up at um, the Palm Sunday event. I mean, his approach to Jerusalem on the on the uh, the donkey, the colt, was a foreshadowing of his eventual coming as the conquering king on the white horse with the sword to destroy and cut down. Um, so I, th I think that's a, that's a good insight that we need to maybe balance our understanding of Christ by drawing both from the gospel text, but also the future texts, the, you know, the, the, the Re Revelation's vision of who Christ is. And there you see a Christ who is not particularly passive or adverse to violence. And I, I, that is a fascinating insight because then if you go to the passage that speaks of, you know, well, many passages, but the one we went to speaking of essentially following in Christ's footsteps or being like Christ, um, John 18 you could argue well, there's, there's more to Christ than passivity. Right. Okay, so uh, we're going to move into the next system. And every system that we go through is going to shed further light on the pluses and minuses of the other. Okay. So we're not done with our objections to this one. They'll come up again as we go to the next set. So the next, uh, the next view is what has historically been called passivism. And th there are passivist de uh, denominations today. Uh, the denomination that my wife grew up in has uh, embedded a passivist statement in their doctrinal statement. I, I'm appreciative of that when I misbehave. Um, it's my wife's hasn't hit me yet. Um, but in, uh, in this worldview, the idea is that Christians should never participate in war. We are only and exclusively called to peacemaking. 
So one might say this is uh, even more defined than non-resistance. Not only do you, all, all the, the argumentation about not being violent applies, but you're not even allowed to participate. So you're not going to show up as a nurse, a medic, a chaplain. You will not wear the uniform. So in other words, this, uh, this system agrees with the non-resistance interpretation of Scripture pretty much point by point, except where the drastic differentiation takes place is they do not see any difference in ethic between national and individual. It's passivism for everybody across the board. And we don't want to just sort of repeat ourselves, so I'll just sort of fly through some of this. Matthew 26, 53, in that context, Jesus told his followers to sheath the sword, put it away. Um, in Matthew 5, and this, this one, we touched on it last week, but we have to come back to this one because this, this is, we're going to have to deal with this text very definitively at some point. Matthew 5:39, you've heard that it was said an an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, that's the, your lex talionis, right? But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So this, one, this is a difficult scripture if you don't believe in passivism because basically saying, you know, if someone goes to, haul off and clock you, let them clock you again. Well, who wants to do that? <laughs> Nobody, but that's, that's what Jesus says. So we need to somehow figure out how to handle that one. John 18, 36, we are in a different kingdom than the world. So theologically then, just a few points here, theologically God is about building a heavenly kingdom, which is clearly about peace. So Brian mentioned the future. Well, the future, future, future is a kingdom of peace. So why not start to contribute to that now would be the argument. Christologically, Jesus brings to light, now listen to this, I think this is a powerful truth, the complete ethic of God, the complete and ultimate ethic of God, and is our pattern for life. So looking at the Gospels, we have, again, we have to maybe struggle with the temple text, but we have more of a passive Christ than anything else. And if he is the complete ethic of God and our ultimate pattern, then we got to wrestle with that. How did he live? Uh, hermeneutically, meaning in terms of how we interpret Scripture, the unfolding of God's revelation moves us towards passivism, they would argue. So in other words, yeah, you're going to have different situations in the Bible where a believer gets violent or protects another, but they're, they're very concerned with looking at the heavenly ultimate vision of life and bringing that into the present now, not waiting for it. But if in the eschaton we will be peaceable and there will be no war, there's no shedding of blood, there's no sword, there's no famine, there's no suffering, there's no crying, then they would, they would envision that the church's mission and the Christian's mission is to start living that ethic now in preparation for and in anticipation of heaven. Uh, so eschatologically then, in the future, millennial peace is the idea we're moving towards. Uh, politically, God is no longer working through a nation, and therefore what Israel does does not apply to the new covenant people, a pacifist would argue. 
Uh, the myth of a modern Christian nation clouds people's view of discipleship in the New Testament age. They would say there's no such thing as a Christian nation, uh, nor is there really any nation, therefore, that embodies the ethic of Christ. So we should kind of expect that nations are going to do what nations are going to do, but we're not responsible to participate in their faulty ethic. Bonds of brotherhood to countrymen. So if you're using the, the, the uh, patriotic debate, well, you're not a patriot, what about us? You know, to go back to Bob's argument, what about the people that are being injured around me? They'd say, look, the, my um, spiritual values trump those. So yes, what ISIS is doing is wrong, but my responsibility to my fellow man is trumped or looked at the other way, inferior to this higher principle that they believe Jesus calls us to. Even if you don't understand, agree with these, I think they're worth thinking about because they certainly help you to understand why people might value this particular position. They would teach that Christians can engage in government so, so long as it does not interfere with kingdom service, that our primary concern should be a responsibility to God, not our rights as citizens. Now, this is another interesting point, and this is going to come up again in the capital punishment debate, which we're going to have, and that is killing people robs them of the privilege of potentially being saved. Uh, keep in mind, by the way, passivism is almost always tied to Arminian theology, not Calvinism. Because in Calvinism, that's not a concern because God's going to get who he wants to get into heaven somehow in some way. But um, passivism, especially among Mennonite uh, denominations, are, uh, is, is wedded to Arminianism, which puts more of the onus on us to get the person into heaven, one might say, crudely speaking. So they would feel uncomfortable taking any life under any circumstances because what if you know, that person otherwise might have come to know Jesus? Um, interestingly, they don't really address the fact that they, those same people might be taking the lives of others who have not yet heard the gospel, <laughs> which is a glitch in the system. Uh, war could be avoided if we become more, more proactive in presenting it. Now, I will say this, um, many Mennonite denominations run rings around others in terms of advocating for world peace, setting up organizations and committees and institutions to advocate for world peace. So they are consistent in this regard in that they don't just preach it, they try to contribute to peace in the world and bring about peace and they're involved in mediation work and negotiations and stuff like that. They believe that uh, a clear witness to peace is the only long-term solution to war. So the mentality is, look, even if it doesn't work in my lifetime, if we commit ourselves to being a peaceable people, eventually we are going to reduce violence in our world and move ourselves closer and closer to the ultimate kingdom ethic. Okay? Uh, you know, one might respond in, you know, with, with statistics, by the way, and uh, you know, they, they say there's more wars taking place in our world right now than ever before. Now there's a lot more people too, but... Uh, you know, just to play the opposite side a little bit, uh, either the pacifists aren't doing their job or it's not working. But then again, maybe that doesn't matter. doesn't mean they're wrong. So, back to our objectives or objections. What would be some of your objections 
passivism. Well, I'm going to start. And what we're going to do is we, we need to go back to Matthew 5. This is a very important passage to try to understand. So um, Jesus says, do not resist the evil one. Okay. If that's all we had, we might want to consider seriously becoming pacifists. But if you actually explore the individual illustrations God uses here, they don't actually relate to violence. You might say, well, yeah, they do. They relate to slapping. That's not really fundamentally a violent act. Uh, if you look at these three illustrations and you sort of take them together, I would like to suggest to you that all three of these illustrations relate more to disrespect than they do to violence. If you want to get violent with someone, you punch them. If you slap them, you're kind of a sissy. But you would punch them. But here, uh, Jesus talks about if someone slaps you on the right cheek. Um, now, Steve here is going to be my... my uh, guy I'm going to get violent with tonight. Okay, he's got his fist cocked. Okay. <laughs> so, so, let me get this right. So this is your this is your right cheek. Okay. So most people are right-handed, right? Um, let me make sure I get this the angles right here. So Jesus says, uh, uh, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek. Okay, so this is my right hand. If I'm going to slap Steve, most people are right-handed. Where is he going to get slapped? Okay, he's going to slap him on the left cheek. So, under what circumstance would I slap him on the right cheek? <laughs> With my left hand, which in that culture is my bum hand. This is your bathroom hand. Like, <laughs> Cottonelle did not have a foothold in Palestine at the time. So, as in... Many modern Arab cultures, they still use their right hand or sorry, their left hand to wipe their behinds. So when I was in Morocco, you'd walk into these bathrooms. There's no toilet paper. There's a like a five-gallon jug of water. You wipe with your left. You slosh it off, oh. and you walk out. <laughs> so, I love teaching this text. <laughs> Yeah. Very well could be. I haven't experienced that in North America, but but I but I I know this is a fact. So culturally culturally it's far more likelihood that Jesus is saying if someone gives you the ultimate disrespect and slaps you on the right cheek with their potty hand offer your other cheek also. But again, it's not a closed fist, it's a slap. Now we look at the second one here. If um, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Your tunic is is like your um, it's like the base symbol of your economic security. 
it you, you most people just have one and it's not like you go to the cupboard and there's a whole bunch it's you might change the undergarments but you just have one tunic at a time for most people so if someone says i basically want to take away a symbol of your economic stability he's like well you know just give them all your clothing well he's not literally advocating nudism but the idea here is, again, allow yourself to be economically disrespected. And now look at the third illustration. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Well, like, why one mile? Well, when, when the Romans, of course, mile would be a different word and a different measurement in, in this context. But when, when the, Ro the Romans were occupying Palestine at the time of Christ, and they actually had a law whereby any soldier, any Roman soldier in Palestine, which was a Roman province at the time, not a country to itself, could, by Roman law, ask Steve, the Jew, uh, you need to carry my stuff one mile. Now, he couldn't ask him to carry it two or three or ten, or he would be violating Roman law, but he could ask him for one. Well, this is the occupier saying to the, the national... Uh, I'm going to use you for my purposes. So it's, it's a disrespectful thing. And Jesus says, hike his gear two miles. So it seems to me that if you think through the three illustrations that Jesus is giving, it's not a text about violence. It's a text about, for your faith, allow yourself to be disrespected. Stop trying to defend yourself every time someone tries to attack you for your faith. But to then take that, because one of those illustrations has a slap involved and create an ethic that says, oh, I can never physically resist someone who's you know, beating the tar out of me or killing my family or attacking my nation. You gotta go elsewhere in the New Testament for that. Because as far as I'm concerned, that would be like an illegitimate use of this particular teaching from Christ. So I hope that's helpful. And then another objection. What would be another objection that you might offer to pacifism? I already offered one. If I'll, I'll, I'll maybe rephrase it a little bit. Uh, if there's a serial, serial killer uh, going all through Windsor killing everybody and you happen to see him taking someone's life in the alley behind your house and he's already killed 10 people and chances are based on his track record he's going to kill more. And you're like, I, I don't want to hurt this guy because he might he might become a Christian if I witness to him. Well, what about the next 10 people whose life he's potentially going to take? So that argument, I think, is pretty, pretty lame. And further to that, you know, as a Reformed theologian, I'm pretty confident that God's going to get to heaven who God's going to get to heaven regardless of my actions. So even if I illegitimately take the life of somebody, you know, I think he's going to take someone's life, but I kill the wrong guy. Um, I'm obviously responsible for that, but it's not like God's like, oh man, I was hoping to get that guy into heaven. I lost that one because of Aaron's stupid choice. <laughs> so I, I, I just, I don't think that's a good argument for resisting violent people. But are there other objections that you might have to, to pacifism as a ethical system Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. Do you think that might be your moral conscience? Or is it just your cultural corruption, Eric? Yeah. I think most men, um, I mean, I think women too, but I think, I mean, I've talked to guys about this. I'm not sure I've had a lot of conversations with women about it, but I think most men would intuitively want to kill or come pretty close to killing another man that was molesting a child. And I think that's a universal uh, cross-cultural notion that there's something in you that that is just so wrong. I will stop it at risk to my life and at risk of that person's life too. Okay, so there's... Um, I guess if we were to frame it in the form of an argument, one might say, what about the universal urge for men to beat the tar out of a child molester? Where does that come from? What would be some other objections you might have to pacifism? Yeah, that's true. I mean, regardless of what system you buy into, that's a true statement. Whether you believe in non-resistance, passivism, or the next one, which is just war, at the end of the day, you still have to fall back on the sovereignty of God and not try to manipulate the sovereignty of God. In some ways, you have to be knowledgeable of the fact that God is sovereign, but then put it to the side and ask yourself, okay, I know God's sovereign, he's going to do what he's going to do, but now what, what is the best thing for me to do? Because I can't presume upon God to ultimately know his will for the specifics of this situation. Um, so, you know, I, I don't want to suggest that the sovereignty of God is a, a lesser concern than my response, but I'm not responsible for the sovereignty of God. I'm responsible for me. So when you're dealing with ethical dilemmas, as soon as you go to, well, God's going to do what God's going to do, well, in actual fact, what you've done is you've stepped out of ethics and you've stepped into a theology of God. But you've stepped out of ethics, which by definition is the study of what do I do in situation A, B, or C? That is ethics by definition. How do I act? As soon as you approach your how do I act question, with God's in control, you've stepped from ethics into theology. And therefore, you have a faulty ethic. Your theology affects your ethics, but ethics is a different subject than your theology of God, formally speaking. Oh. <laughs> you know, like, to me, I rather like put a, a, a clerk or whatever who wants to do a, a, a bad deed or something that, rather than seize me, oh. and that will deter him to come in. Yeah. You know what I mean? Especially if you're flexing. Yeah, know. I know. <laughs> but, but, you know, that, that's a, and I'm not being, I'm being passive. Yeah. Very good. Okay, we're going to take a, a break from the teaching. Um, we'll enjoy a 10-minute prayer time followed by some snacks, and then 15 minutes from now we'll start teaching again.
All right. Well, um, as you're coming back to your seats, we want to recognize uh, two people in the room tonight. My lovely wife, Susie Rock, and the equally lovely Jordan Jones, uh, both of whom are celebrating their birthdays tomorrow. So this is why uh, why Jenna made the cupcakes for Jordan, but she didn't realize she was also making them for Susie, apparently. So, so why don't we sing happy birthday to them both, okay? Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Susie and Jordan, Jordan and Susie. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> All right. Did Susie disappear, or is she still in the room? She left? Oh. Well, we'll sing it again when she gets back. (laughs) By the way, Glenn wanted to thank all of you who were culturally sensitive and only took the cakes with your right hands. He was very appreciative of of that. (laughs) So the... the, the, Uh, The third um, uh, ethical response to the question of war is called um, uh, just war theory, Um, as in not we love just war, but uh, from the word justice, and that is the view that Christians may fight in wars of defense or uh, maybe a little bit more accurately wars they're clearly tied to an issue of justice, just war. So here's the basic argumentation. Matthew 26, 53, Jesus asked his disciples to sheath the sword, but he did not ask them to throw it away. In fact, he asked his disciples to carry the sword in order to presumably defend themselves. Now, according to Don, that's just from wild animals. According to Joe, it's from people. But, you know, you can quibble over that. Uh, so then the Matthew 5.39 text, which we just discussed, would be that Jesus' teachings is to permit personal ridicule, uh, but that's not akin to letting people kill you or others. Or Jesus would have used different illustrations. Deuteronomy 24.17 uh, Psalm 82.3, James 1.27 uh, are passages that, among many passages, especially in the Old Testament, that call the nation to stand up for those that are being oppressed, you know, to applaud the cause of the widow, the orphan, the, the foreigner. And in principle then, just war theorists would say, that certain forms of war are an expression of a response to the call to stand for justice against the vulnerable. So what are the the stipulations or requirements for just war? Just war requires a just cause. I can write all these down. A just cause, a just intention. So you have to be properly motivated. It should be a last resort. 
It should include a formal declaration of intention in order to give the aggressor an opportunity to change their mind or back down. It should have a limited objective attached to it. So you don't say, I'm going to fight for the cause of uh, you know, displaced Yazidi people, and while we're at it, we're going to take all their oil fields and loot their houses and ransack their treasury and you know, all their museums. You know, no. Okay? So it has to have a limited objective. It should have proportionate means. So, uh, like with the, with Hitler, for example, you attack his army and his his person, but you just don't go, you know, you don't go around indiscriminately, uh, you know, killing everyone who's ever met the guy, kind of thing. Proportionate means, and it should have a high level of immunity guaranteed for the innocent bystander. Just in listening to that, you can kind of tell how. Uh, most Western nations have adopted this view because that's those are the things they try to balance. And if anybody smells from a mile away, that's not really what they're doing. They'll be criticized by the media. Now, um, obviously, we could sort of jump ahead to um, objections momentarily, but the biggest object the biggest objection to just war theory is not that people. Ad- um, object to just war theory, but they often will be suspicious of the people who determine that it's a just cause and upon what grounds is it a just cause and is it truly the cause for which we are going. So you all know that basically every war that's been fought in the Middle East in the last 20 some odd years, no matter what president or a group of nations has initiated it, the greatest criticism by far is why are they really there? Like, are they really there because they're trying to, whatever, free the Afghanis from the Taliban or free the uh, you know people from Al-Qaeda? Or is there an, another uh, reason? And, I mean, you can debate that everybody's got a different opinion. on. I'm just using it as an illustration of of uh, the greatest criticism tends to be not, well, yeah, we shouldn't fight just causes. It's, well, what, why really are we there? So um, moving on, uh, Romans 13. Let's go to Romans 13. And verses 1 to 7, let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, by the way, let's just say this. This is not, this is not intended. This is a limited statement. It, it has to be a qualified statement. Um, a person can self-declare themselves to be in a position of authority, but it's illegitimate. Um, so we have to be you know, careful not to read this as an absolute statement. Well, everybody that's in a position of authority on earth, they're put there from God, so I should obey them. Well, sometimes governments need to be overthrown because they're illegitimate or absolutely tyrannical. And you know, one could say the higher ethic 
of guarding people's lives and peace and prosperity overtakes even this command at times. And that's why we would applaud a nation that overthrows a murderous government at times without feeling we violated or disrespected this particular verse or verses like it. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities rejects, resists what God has rejected, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, here's a key statement. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Well, that's not always true, but that's the purpose of good government. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. So there's some qualifications here that need to be considered with regard to the nature of a properly functioning government. But if you do wrong, listen to this, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the evildoer. So minimally, what we can agree on is that this is advocating for just and proper government. It's not necessarily advocating for unjust and improper government that are not that are in fact a terror to their people, not in place for good, uh, the, the good, the good of the people. But minimally, it's advocating for a good and proper government. And in that context, if you misbehave or try to cast off their authority on your life, the idea is, is that using the sword, uh, probably more than as hyperbole, you'll be punished for it. And I think how a New Testament reader would have understood that is by death because that's typically how governments use the sword, not to prick you, but to cut your head off. So it would appear then, it would appear then that the word of God here is advocating some use of violence by a legitimate government towards evildoers within their midst. So the argument would be, if they can do that within their midst, why couldn't they extend that moral right or authority outside of their geographical boundaries, or at least in defense of their geographical boundaries against invaders, against non-citizens. 1 Peter 2, 13 to 14. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor or supreme, or the governors, as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. So same, same idea there. John 18 um, and Matthew 5, which were called upon earlier by non-resistance theorists, the just war theorists would say that if there is an ethic for non-violence in Scripture, it is limited to the individual not, quote-unquote, taking the law into their own hands. By the way, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think there are times when I would feel very comfortable taking the law into my own hands. As much as Canadian law doesn't really like that, and I'm probably not being a good Canadian by saying that, um, I think there are times when we, we pretty much must take the law into our own hands if we see an act being committed, even though in doing so we may be punished by the laws of our land. War is unquestionably evil, so this is under just war theory, but the question is not 
should we participate, but how can we not, given the injustices of the world? So don't, don't think of a just war theorist as, yeah, we love going to war, let's go get them. I've known a few Christian soldiers that seem like they would just really, really like to go kill somebody. And I think that that's immature and not a reflection of a strong Christian ethic. But a Christian soldier should be driven by an ethic to protect the innocent if so called upon according to a just war theorist. So there's a difference between wanting to go to war uh, and recognizing that there may be times when it's unavoidable according to this theory. Next point is war is no different on a large scale than punishing a criminal is on a smaller scale. To be consistent, a pacifist must also allow criminals to go unpunished if there is any chance that death could occur in apprehending or punishing them. Think about that. A true pacifist will let a true pacifist, not, not that they would do this, but the objection would be a true pacifist, if they want to be consistent, has to let everybody get away with everything. Because any form of punishment may be detrimental somewhere down the line to whatever, their potential to encounter Christ. Uh, further to that would be the argument that even if the old covenant holy wars are not transferable to the church or nations today, there is this sense that it's the same God sanctioning the death of, quote-unquote, the innocents in certain situations, men, women, children, at times, and therefore depriving them of the opportunity to come to know the true God. So unless it is a different God under both covenants, or unless one testament got wrong, its record of what that God is like, uh, there's probably a, a greater problem with the idea of, well, we should never take anybody's life because that's depriving them of the opportunity to know God. Uh, there's probably a greater problem with that because it didn't seem to be a, a, a problem for God and the prophets of the Old Covenant. It wasn't even a consideration, in fact. Uh, the issue is less one of determining whether war is something we should do based upon Old or New Testament, and it is more one of graded absolute. So I would suggest to you that the, um, I guess it's erased now, but the just war camp is probably most in line with graded absolutes, and they say, yeah, war is wrong. Letting innocent people being wiped out is a greater wrong. Um, engaging in violence, throwing people around, hand-to-hand -hand combat, stabbing people, blowing their heads off, blowing them to bits through bombs, dropping bombs on them. <laughs> is that right? <laughs> oh, in a sense, it's wrong. But in that context, it's condonable because the greater evil is to uh, allow the innocence to be wiped out. And further to that, because of the principle of corporate responsibility, most just worth theorists would do everything possible to 
protect the innocent in a just war from being killed, but would be prepared for a certain measure of innocent casualties in order to uh, accommodate the greater good of saving the innocent. So in other words, um, if in order to wage war, a just war theorists knew that statistically, if I kill 10,000 of the enemy, I'm going to kill five innocents. If I don't kill 10,000 of the enemy, they're going to kill 10,000 innocents. They would still feel comfortable waging war. And they would feel justified and innocent before God in doing so. Not that the individual life doesn't count, but they would see that as a case of a graded absolute. Uh, taking life is problematic, but there's a on a on a grade, there's a greater problem with allowing ten thousand to die than five. So I mean, on a heart level, that doesn't sound good, but we're speaking objectively here, and that's how that would be processed. Uh, just war theory applies across the board to all people, believing or unbelieving, since God's moral law applies to everyone and everyone is held accountable to it according to Romans 1.3. So they would put this in the category of an absolute moral law, not a ceremonial law, not a, a covenant law limited to one covenant or the other, that the call to protect the innocent using even violent means, extreme violent means, including the death of an aggressor, is... Uh, is morally acceptable for every person, every nation, every culture through all of time. In fact, they would ground it in, you know, even the pre-Noahic texts, you know, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Here's another point, though, that needs to be very clear. Just war theory does not justify war itself. So just war theory is saying, we believe there are just reasons to wage war, but it doesn't really justify war. War is always and only wrong. It is a great evil. So there's no way you can paint war as positive in just war theory, but the um, it's still necessary at times to engage in war for greater issues of justice. And most just war theorists would argue, you know, given there might be exceptions to this, you know, home bur burglars and that kind of thing, but private individuals do not have the right to use force by themselves, especially if it's to the uh, chagrin of or in direct violation of the laws of your own government. So it's not like three of us could get together and say we're we're going to form our own army and wage war against whatever ISIS because uh, unless our government permitted us to do that because there's a sense of corporate responsibility to the legitimate authorities under which you live. That's different than I don't know who brought it up, maybe Eric you, know, you go into your house and someone's killing a family member or raping somebody, well, you don't need to, hello, 911? Oh, yeah, my wife's just been stabbed for the 50th time. Can you send some officers? Oh, yeah, the guy's still stabbing him. 
oh, I don't want to respond, I'm not a police officer. Like, it's not like that stupidity, right? Um, but that's not really war, that's just the uh, putting, a, putting an end to a violent act. Okay, there are some, there are some, uh, some objections, legitimate objections to this theory. What might they be? What are some objections? Mm. Yeah, I think that that's that's good language. So selfish, let's write that down. Selfish ambition. versus justice. Hidden agendas, that, that's also sort of part of that. Yeah? Just wars were basically tried Yeah, I mean, one could argue that, with the exception of the barbarians, the barbarian wars or the wars of Attila the Hun, where, I mean, Attila the Hun would deliberately kill men, women, and children just to wreak havoc and to instill fear within people around him. And he'd go over the top, like he would pile their bodies up high and his soldiers would actually have dances on tops of these huge piles of corpses. And there's people there that never picked up a sword or pushed back or nothing. They just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. But if we think of more recent history, minus the last hundred years, there was a chivalry attached to war, especially among the Europeans, where you'd dress your guys up in a less than conspicuous way. I mean, how much less conspicuous can you get than a red uniform with a white cross, right? It's ridiculous, but... Um, <laughs> You, you line everybody up, here's the bullseye, right? Um, you don't have to have 20-20 vision to see them coming. And you would line everybody up, and you'd fire. Guys would move back. You know, give your buddies an opportunity to reload. They'd fire at you. You'd fire. And at the end of the day, the guy with the most men standing wins. I mean, you would not have a lot of people signing up for the Canadian Armed Forces if you did it that way today. But there, there was a sense of chivalry in that, in that, with few exceptions, the, the noble soldier dies, but the farmer and his wife and kids, they're not, they're not going to get shot because you're not bombing cities and dropping nukes and stuff like that. So there was a period of time where war had a sense of chivalry to it and sort of an honorable thing, I guess you might say. Um, and in that era, it's a lot easier to sort of identify a just war from an unjust war. But all the different political realities and how soldiers act in the battlefield and all the stuff you don't see and whatnot, yeah, it can legitimately fog and cloud the issue. So the, the question really that's been posed, and this is how I put it, is man able to determine just causes apart from God? And the answer to that is sometimes yes, Sometimes no, sometimes I don't know. It's hard to tell. 
sometimes you can be a, I mean, you could have a, a non-Christian atheist. It may be uh, a symptom of the inconsistency of their worldview, but they can sniff out an unjust cause and react to it in a way that we, we might appreciate uh, without referencing God. Um, but there's a lot of questions about whether that is more up to happen than you know, selfish ambition or whatever it might be. Yeah, that, that would probably be, in my opinion, the biggest objection to the just war. It would just depend on whose uh, determination or definition of justice. Yeah. yeah. And that would be the biggest objection. Yeah. If it's like a Army A is indiscriminately walking through the countryside blowing people up. And Army B says, we're going to stop that. And they go in, kill the bad guys, return people to their property and walk out. Who's going to argue that point? But when, when was the last time that happened? Yeah, and you touched earlier on the, uh, well, the, the two of the great biggest wars that affected people in Canada were World War I and World War II. Um, of course, there were many, many reasons for both of those wars, but it was perceived or, or given or sold to the Canadian people anyways as being just mm. in the, as in the defense of our homeland and yep. the defense of, uh, of our country and the liberation of people who were being oppressed. So, yeah. yep. But that was perceived as, as just in our eyes from here. Yeah, that's true. Further to that, let's just remind ourselves, we have the benefit of now knowing about the concentration camps. The average GI had no idea until after the war was done. So a person marching in World War II might have been marching for just reasons, but in the forefront of their mind was not the liberation of the Jews. I mean, you've, you've, you've seen many of the war movies that accurately depict the fact the soldiers you know walk up to this camp and they're like what in the world is this can you believe this these people are the war is done they had no idea this was going on so there there is a different rationale even if it's a just war and i think that it probably was more of a just war than not uh for the allies to fight the germans but the rationale at the time was a little different than the rationale we now generally appeal to, which is the slaughter of six million Jews, because we now have that information at our disposal. Um, yeah, go ahead, Joe. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And there's actually even more to it than that. The next theory is called preventative war. And one could argue, too, that the Crusades even fall in that. And the basic idea behind preventative war is that you can go to war to both stop attacks, potential attacks, not even real attacks, and to right acts of injustice. Um, just some things to think about. When you're talking about justice issues, um, on, on one hand, we recognize that a country like ours, the way it's set up, as are most countries, for stability are hugely dependent upon national, the national economy. 
which wouldn't have been true in Jesus' day. So they didn't have like a, a national economy like we have where, you know, people are investing in stocks and bonds and, and the, the nature of the market takes them up or takes them down and, you know, wholesale companies close or start based upon, it was more, okay, I'm responsible as a farmer to make sure my crop come up and I get to sell what I can. I'm sort of more, it's, it's microeconomics rather than macroeconomics. But our whole economic system is hugely dependent upon national security, um, the price of oil, gas, you know, all that kind of stuff. So if you listen then to many modern proponents of just war, they'll say, well, it's just for us to attack whoever it might be, Saddam Hussein, because his actions are detrimental to our economy, which by extension are detrimental to our people. And it sounds right, because all, every one of us, I'm concerned about my job. I don't want my family to lose their shirt. I don't want my investments to collapse. I mean, I got my RRSPs and this and that and other thing. But then you sort of pause and think, well, whose choice was it for us to rely upon Middle Eastern petroleum? Is that like a human right somehow included in the very text of scripture that if I make an agreement to found, and I'm speaking an overstatement here, if I make an agreement with a foreign nation to found 50% of my uh, economy on a product that only they can adequately provide, and when they take it back, I have a right to invade? Like, is that kind of what Jesus had in mind when it came to issues of justice? So back to Susie's point, that could be argued as not a justice issue, but an issue of self-preservation or self-ambition. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that, you know, every aspect of those kind of wars is wrong, but sometimes I, I think there's maybe more of a, we, we maybe don't, we've taken the issue of justice and we've stretched it beyond its original basic notion of protecting the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, the sojourner, to protecting our economic structures, uh, protecting our high standard of living, uh, protecting our our uh, you know high-paying jobs, and again, from a human perspective, I get it, I get it, but it does cause one to ask the question, you know, have have we become too dependent upon world systems uh, and world structures? And we've been dependent on them for so long that we actually think when someone tries to take them away from us, that's a justice issue. And maybe in the eyes of God, that really isn't a justice issue. Maybe that's a self-preservation issue. And if it is, there is no grounds to wage war along those lines. So, something to think about. All of that I framed in the form of a question, by the way, to protect myself rather than a statement. But, uh, you know, they say that the Iraqis and that uh, we have to work for them, not against them, or something like that. You all that, in, that is in Iraq or something like that, the key countries that benefit from that is France and Russia. We don't even get benefit from them, even the states. I don't know why they Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. And those two countries then participate. I'll leave that to you when you run for office, Jack, to figure all that out. <laughs> <laughs>
think we didn't have this problem as much in, in the past because we had a tendency to think uh, some of the past as, as kind of the good old days. Yeah. A more yeah. honest, ordinary flavor <laughs> yeah. of everything about it. However, yeah. I'm sure that might be. But we'll, from here on in, and in the recent past, we'll, we'll, we'll forever have a tremendous problem in trying to determine individually what a just war is yes. because the world is so big and so complex and so ugly at many different levels that we almost can't trust at times elected officials in our own governments for giving us the proper information as to reasons why these wars would occur. Yeah. Although they can paint a picture, a noble picture of a, a preventative instance would be in going to war to prevent the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, is that really the reason be behind some of these different things? And it just gets more complicated all over yeah. the world now with interests everywhere. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a huge trust issue and a perspective issue. And you know, there's times when you hear something and you're absolutely convinced that this is right or wrong, and then, like usually a global issue, and then someone maybe from that culture, that context, sheds a different light on it. You're like, wow, I'm not so sure anymore. I'll give you an example of this. Um, I, uh, like, as of today, I think he's probably more wrong than right, but he could be right, and that is I have a neighbor who's from northern Iraq, raised in a Christian context, and... Uh, his his perspective is, um, you know, and again, even if he's 90% wrong, if he's 10% right, it could be disastrous, that the Syrian crisis is in part orchestrated by um, the Syrians to inject massive amounts of militant Muslims into Western countries. Well, that didn't even cross my mind. I'm just thinking there's all these... You know, poor people being shooed out of their home, and you have a moral responsibility. You take 10,000, you take 10, you take... He says this is a bad idea. Now, I don't know if that's partially true or whatnot, but he's he's coming at it from the perspective of a Middle Eastern who grew up persecuted and whatnot and has seen certain things that may uh, hinder his ability to see it objectively, or maybe there's some truth there, right? So the, when you start hearing stuff like that, you start to second guess maybe what you would otherwise consider to be the simplicity of the situation. It's a clear moral issue. There's just people that are being kicked out, and yada, yada, yada. And again, even if he's 10% right, and there's you know, 100,000 among the 4 million that have that as their objective, you know, that's, uh, that could be catastrophic for some, right? So... Um, being aware of world realities and hearing the different opinions and the complexities to all this stuff, you'd almost think that the more information we had, the clearer things would be. And sometimes it becomes a lot less clear, and it, and it, and it gives you, you know, uh, cause to pause and think. Just one other objection, by the way, before we we wrap up, because uh, we're out of time, is um, is. Uh, and this might seem kind of ludicrous in the modern context, but I think Joe sort of touched upon it in his uh, Crusades um, analogy, is what about those who would consider evangelism by the sword a just cause? So if you were to pinpoint, let's say, a particular nation, we'll call it nation ABC, 
and they have outlawed Christianity. And if we send a million guys in to kill off 10 million people and open the doors for evangelism in the church, is that just? Again, we're not dealing with that in the modern context. I suppose we might come back to that. Militant Islamists would say yes. Medieval Christians would say yes. Old Testament Jews would say yes. Um, the question is, is that legitimate for the church today? By the way, it's easy to immediately and instantaneously poo-poo some of the actions of militant Islamists when under the authority of God, the Jews did the exact same things in the Levitical the period of the Levitical law. Uh, I believe there are reasons and explanations to deal with that, but uh, you can't just say, it's wrong. Well, why is it wrong? It's wrong. You should know it's wrong. Oh, what? let me read to you uh, about the Canaanite genocide. Oh, I never read that one. My, my Sunday school teacher conveniently overlooked that. Those 15 passages. Um by the way, there's an interesting book. Glenn lent it to me called uh, Four Views. I think it's Four Views or Five on the Canaanite genocide. And uh, it does give the perspective of several different theologians on why God sanctioned the Canaanite genocide, including men, women, and, and babies, children, which, um, which is helpful if you're serious about debating Muslims um, when it comes to holy war or notions of holy war. Anyway, it's just something for you to think about. Uh, sometimes we we don't consider the teachings of the Old Testament when we criticize modern ethical notions. And when someone just throws it back on our lap, we're like, oh, I don't know what to do. Or the lamest response of all, which most Christians don't even have any idea what this means, is, well, that's just Old Testament. Like, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> like, what does that mean? That's just Old Testament. Okay, well, you could explain to me what that actually means? Um, because I'm hearing you quote a lot of thou shalt nots, and those are definitely found in the Old Testament, and several other laws that are found in the Old Testament. Anyway, uh, next week at the beginning of class, we'll finish the very last view, and then... Uh, just to kind of keep the excitement going, we're going to get into the issue of capital punishment. Okay?